The next case was presented by Dr. Fishback to Dr. Lynch. The next patient is a 65-year-old woman, 15-pack-year smoker, quit 20 years ago, who we were seeing in follow-up for a metastatic ALK-positive lung adenocarcinoma. In July of 2007, she also had, had abdominal imaging for presumed diverticulitis, and two sub-two-centimeter nodules were discovered in her right lower lung. And in addition, she had some pretracheal adenopathy, the largest about 1.8 centimeters. She did have a mediastinoscopy and had bulky adenopathy from the subcranial region of the superior mediastinum, which was underappreciated by her scan. And she had two right paratracheal lymph nodes, which were sampled and were positive for adenocarcinoma. That was CK7 and TTF1 positive. The PET scan for staging was positive in her lung nodules and mediastinum with some questionable uptake in her left hilum. At that point, we had discussed neoadjuvant chemotherapy in question of resection versus chemoradiotherapy. She had some very negative feelings about surgery based on experience of her husband. It was another husband-wife duo. Her husband, I at the time, was treating for metastatic esophageal carcinoma who had a lot of problems with a post-thoracotomy pain syndrome. And she opted for chemoradiation. And after two febrile hypersensitive reactions to Taxol, weekly Taxol, with her weekly carboplatin Taxol, forswore chemotherapy forever and went on to receive radiotherapy alone, which she completed October 07. By December 07, follow-up imaging had shown some question of progression in her lung parenchymal disease, and she started Tarsiva. And she tolerated 150 milligrams poorly and switched to 100 milligrams and did reasonably well on that for a period of about a year and a half until in April 2009, she developed a right temporal skull metastasis as well as a new abnormality at T10. And she received palliative radiation to the skull and increased her Tarsiva dose to 150 milligrams. Around that time, the EML ALK story was breaking. And based on a previous patient that I had had the opportunity to discuss with Dr. Lynch, who he had suggested EML ALK testing, we sent the EML ALK testing on this woman, which in fact was positive. And she ultimately saw Alice Shaw, but first she saw Scott Gettinger and discussed participation in the randomized trial with the ALK inhibitor versus chemotherapy. And again, given her feelings about chemotherapy, declined participation in that and made her way up to Seattle Shaw at Mass General, where she was enrolled in the ALK inhibitor trial, which she's done really terrifically with, has had responsive disease, but just as importantly, has had virtually no toxicity from the drug. Tom, can you update us on the AML4 ALK story? It was presented at the plenary session this year at ASCO. So I think from a lung cancer perspective, we think it's one of the biggest stories in lung cancer in the past decade. And it's yet another example of an oncogene-addicted disease where a fusion protein between the EML4 gene and the anaplastic lymphoma kinase or ALK gene comes together and forms a fusion protein, which is the oncogenic addicted protein for these cancer cells. And the PF0234 1066 drug made by Pfizer has shown an exceptional activity in patients who harbor this ALK fusion protein. At ASCO this year, we heard data, an update from last year's ASCO presentation, suggested response rates in the low 60% range with progression-free survivals that look like they're going to be at least a year in duration. And we don't even really have a good handle on what the PFS and overall survival is going to be. The trial is too immature at this point. I think the big concern at ASCO was, is really, should this drug be approved now based on what we've seen? And I think a number of us in the lung cancer community feel that the data is very strong, that if you have an ALK 
positive translocation, you should be treated with this drug, and that a randomization study really is not something that's very viable at this point. And I think this patient showed that. I mean, you offered a randomized trial in March when she knew what the data was. She chose to seek a compassionate use study for it. So our hope is that the FDA will look at this and look kindly at this data sooner rather than later so we can get this drug to patients. What I was impressed by with her, and I treated a number of patients on these trials myself, was her quality of life. I mean, she looked as good as any patient in the waiting room today. I mean, she looked fantastic. And no side effects, no significant rash, no diarrhea, no liver function problems. And that is good. She's got an excellent quality of life. And she and Neil spent the whole visit basically talking about her summer vacation plans, which is a good problem. It also brings up the question of whether EML4 alk testing itself should be done in a widespread basis. I mean, you can always figure out whether or not you're going to be able to get the drug. It sort of ties into this issue. Do you do EGFR testing? Tom, are there specific situations where you really think about EML4 ALK? And I guess the one I think about is the non-smoker who's EGFR mutation negative. So I think all non-smokers who are EGFR mutation negative should be tested for it. You know, the big question is, should you do it sequentially with EGFR mutation or should you do it concurrently? You could even make an argument to do the EML ALK mutation test first and the EGFR test second in some cases. What we don't know really is what the true incidence of this is. It's still early in the course of the disease. And the fact that everyone's throwing the number out there, that it's 30% of EGFR wild-type patients, well, we've never done the reverse and flipped and find out what percentage of ALK are EGFR mutation positive. So I think testing for both of these makes sense that this be done reflexively in patients. And I agree that I think if we test more patients, we will find more people who can benefit from this.